Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. John Newfell concludes his second week of his five-week series in Romans entitled, The Heart of the Gospel. In today's message, Dr. Newfell will be moving into Romans 1, verses 21 to 25, and discussing the descent of man. Now let's join Dr. Newfeld and open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I have entitled my words today, The Descent of Man. If you think about that, this seems wrong, counterintuitive. We live in a day when it's quite natural to think of the human condition as always improving. Of course, we have every reason to think so. Technologically, we have reached dizzying heights. I know we get used to things moving fast, but think of our phones, which are actually very powerful computers. They can access any bit of information we might possibly want at any time in any place around the globe. What previous generation has ever imagined such a thing? Our ability to diagnose and deliver health care, even though we still complain, nevertheless, what we have achieved is astonishing. Add to that a global economy that has made goods and services both available to all and at a price that is constantly more affordable, while anyone living in the middle class in the Western world now lives at a level that kings and queens of the past could not have dreamt about. That hardly seems like the descent of man, quite the opposite. And by the way, speaking of kings and queens, well, we've thankfully done away with them. Democracy is now taken for granted, and we, the citizens, will determine our own future, not some monarch who rules by their self-interest. No, no, now government will be for our interest. We've established a political climate that makes progress attainable. It is for that reason that the ascent of man, not the descent of man, seems the logical conclusion to what has happened. But there is more. Evolutionary theory has taught us that all life forms, including our own, are ever-evolving, ever-improving, or some foresee a day when our baser instincts will simply no longer exist. Indeed, some say we can even help nature along. We've become masters of the universe. We can make this place better. We can even create a better genetic race. The future is bright. We will live longer, live better, and live with a more peaceful world. We're ascending to a great future. It is for this reason that many are dismissive about the negative appraisal that the book of Romans gives to the human condition. Paul has told us that whatever limited knowledge people may have of God, their creator, even that knowledge is knowledge all people choose to ignore, and in response, God himself is angry. And if God is angry, how can our future be good? Furthermore, as we're going to see today, Romans teaches us that God has not only reserved a day of wrath in the future, but that in a kind of foretaste of what will come one day. God is demonstrating his anger right now among us. In other words, our lot in life may be improving from some perspectives, but from the grand meta perspective, our lot in life is not improving at all. It's becoming worse. Indeed, our situation is desperate. Now, I think we all know that. Yes, we're all more technologically advanced than we've ever been before, but this technology has been placed into the hands of sinful human beings, and now our power to bring harm and death has increased exponentially. Already we know that the last century was the bloodiest and most violent century in human history. Where is all this going? Let's read our text, Romans 1, 21 to 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's break this thought down into several units. First, every human being is held accountable for the knowledge of God they have. That is, with what we know comes an accountability. And at the very minimum, there is a duty to honor God and give thanks to God. That is, to express to Him in worship that we are profoundly grateful to Him. And by the way, if that's true of all people, even people who have never been in the presence of a Bible or heard it taught— How much more so of those who claim to know Christ? We are obligated to give thanks in all circumstances. We are obligated to take all our anxieties, concerns, failures, disappointments, and fears, and believe that a loving God is working out His good purposes in our lives. Worship and profound gratefulness, not complaining or bitterness. Gratefulness ought to be the defining characteristic of all of our lives. Now, there's an interesting background to the word glory. Paul says, exchanged the glory of the eternal God for something else. That's the word glory. The Old Testament background for this word simply means weight. But what can that mean? Well, the Israelites did not actually use coins as units of wealth until after the Babylonian captivity. Before then, value or the cost of something was based on the weight of something, of either silver or of gold. More weight, more value. So ascribing weight or glory to the value of God meant finding him and his presence and his care for us and his being itself more valuable than the weight of all other things combined. And that's exactly says Paul, what every single human being knows intuitively and what he or she has not done, more so. To do this, to ascribe glory to God, is the ultimate duty of every single human being. Worship is what is required. It is basic to all human goodness. Let me help us with this. We have a sense that every human being should do justice, should treat their neighbor well, should care for the rights of the poor and the oppressed, should be truthful in their dealings. We think slander is wrong, so is murder, so are many things. There are basic duties assigned to every single human being. All that's true. But these things are not of ultimate weight or the things that matter most. Here is what our Creator says. More than all your duties, you are required as a being created by my hand to remember that I have supplied you with everything you have and you owe me an infinite debt of gratitude. I gave you a world filled with resources. I gave you both an intellect and the energy to harness my resources. I supplied you with health and it was I who gave you breath and everything else. I require of you that you acknowledge that. But what happens? when we don't. And by the way, that's the point of what's being said. We all don't worship as we ought. That's the weightiest failure of our lives. So what follows? Well, failure to worship leads to futility of thinking. That's what verse 22 says. Claiming to be wise, says Paul, they became fools. 
Now, we need to understand the mindset of the person whose life is not dominated by an awareness of the weight of God and committed to a response of worship. Once thoughts of God vanish from the horizon, it has to be replaced by something else. And what rushes into the vacuum of our minds and hearts, as we're going to see, has everything to do with the fact that we make ourselves into gods. I will worship me. I will explain in a moment how we come to that. But for now, let's at least say that when I become overwhelmed with myself, I become a fool. It was Augustine who said that there are two cities. One is the city of God and one's the city of man. Augustine said that the city of God was dominated by the love of God and the hatred of self, whereas the city of man was dominated by the love of self and the hatred of God. I think that says it well. Now, if you're stumbling over this hatred of self thing, well, let me help you with that. Uh, See it simply as an awareness of the greatness of our sin and the sense that the only hope that we have is found in the mercy of God in the face of Christ. But when we become wise in our own eyes, we actually become fools. I think Paul means here the kind of definition of the fool we find in Proverbs, the man who is both ignorant and arrogant at the same time. He is unaware of God, and he is cocky about his own power and his own abilities. But that doesn't mean that human beings become irreligious. Even when we refuse to honor and give thanks to the Creator, we don't at that moment cease to be in the image of God. We are still, as an expression of our humanity, driven to worship something outside of ourselves. That's the explanation for all the religions in the world. So according to verse 23... We exchange the glory of God for something else. Imagine it's Christmas time and you've been given a gift and you decide to trade it in for something else in the store. That's the image. For we take this obligation to see the weight or the value of the one true God and we exchange this for something else. We exchange it for idolatry, what Paul calls images, resembling either mortal man or resembling animals. Now, we might wonder how this images of animals or mortal man actually works in contemporary society, but I think it does. And when we come back, we're going to look at idolatry. We're going to see it for the ugliness that it truly is, because it is true that the human heart is an idol factory. And we're going to see how idolatry plays a role in our relationship with God or our alienation from our relationship with God. Today we've been talking about how the advancement of our world in a technological sense has also led to more and more sin taking place in the hearts of people. Sin has invaded our world, causing people of all ages and backgrounds to live impure and imperfect lives. So how do we respond? And what does God have to say about it all? Well, we'll look further into the Word for some answers with Dr. Neufeld right after this break. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope that the five-week series from Dr. Neufeld on Romans, the heart of the gospel, has been a blessing. And remember, if you'd like a copy of the series for yourself, it can be purchased on CD for only $20, plus shipping and handling. But also, as our gift to you, we'd like to send you John's series on Philemon, entitled An Alternative Lifestyle. So to order a copy of Dr. Neufeld's series on Romans, or to ask for your gift, An Alternative Lifestyle, Call us today at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's rejoin Dr. Neufeld as we go back to the Bible. 
We've all exchanged the image of the immortal God for idols. Our impulse now is to direct our attention away from that which is ultimate to that which is immediate. We move from the creator to the creation. Our minds become filled with what God has made and with what we can do with the creation. In fact, as Paul puts it, it's either a worship of the animals or a worship of something resembling ourselves. I think the animal reference might be to the incident of Israel before Sinai. God brought their enemies to their knees. He parted the Red Sea. He destroyed the Egyptian army. He supernaturally fed them every morning, and he brought them to a mountain in which he revealed himself to them. And what do they do in response? They construct a calf and say, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And why did they do that? The idea is that we prefer to worship a lesser God, one we can control and manipulate rather than the creator God before whom there is no other response but to worship. And God sees this for what it is, a monstrous sin. And Paul has said that all human beings have deserted the creator in favor of idols looking like animals or idols, he says, resembling mortal man. In other words, our gods look curiously like ourselves. In short, we remake God, and when we're done, he is the God of our imagination, who does things we would want him to do. This really amounts to simply worshiping ourselves. And by the way, I wonder if you've ever noticed a phenomenon called anger with God. Here's what sometimes happens, maybe often happens. We construct a God of our own liking, and when he doesn't behave the way we expect him to, we're angry with him. Let me give you an example. I might say, I know that God exists to make me happy and to fulfill my deepest cherished dreams and fulfill the greatest urges that I have. And when these things don't happen, God, you must be responsible. Why didn't you come through? And so we're angry, not ever realizing who the real God is. Professing to be wise, we become fools. But and this is the terrifying part of this passage. God responds to this failure of duty. In verse 24, Paul says, therefore God gave them up. And then he repeats that phrase in verse 26. And then one more time in verse 28, three times Paul repeats, God gave them up. What can that mean? On a popular level, it means to abandon us. So, for instance, if you were to tell me that you had season's tickets, let's say to the Ottawa Senators, but this year you gave them up, what would that mean? Or here's another example, something far more serious. If you were to say you had children, but you gave them up for adoption or for something like that, in that case, it would mean that someone else was now raising them. You're no longer caring for them. Is that how we were to understand what God did? Did he abandon his creation or did he abandon the people whom he created? Is that why so many people don't know God, can't hear God, have different views of God, running around with disappointment with God? Has God just given up on us? No, I don't think that's what he means at all. Let's begin by noticing that whatever that phrase means, gave them up, that it is an explanation of what Paul said back in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed. Whatever giving up means, it is an expression of the righteous anger of God, a kind of settled antagonism toward those who will not give thanks for the kindness of their creator. 
But still, we've not yet answered how God is expressing that anger. Or to put it another way, is this handing over, is it passive or is it active? In other words, does God merely step out of people's way and let them become the things they desire? Or is he actively pushing them to do something they don't desire? See, one Bible teacher put it this way, God stops holding the boat and lets it be dragged along by the current in the river. In other words, he simply takes his hand away and lets us fulfill our own unrighteous desires to our own ruin. That would be the passive understanding of handing over. But another Bible teacher put it this way. He said, God is like a judge who hands his prisoner over to the punishment their crime deserves. In other words, he actively gives us over to the desires that now consume us. That would be the active view of this phrase. Now, let's be honest. From this text alone, we can't be sure which view is right. Perhaps both ways of looking at this might in some ways be true. Think about the phrase found in Exodus regarding Pharaoh. God says, I will harden his heart. In fact, God repeats this phrase about five times. At first glance, we might think, well, God is manipulating Pharaoh to act differently than he might normally act. But that can't be true, for the book of Exodus uses the phrase, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, as often as it says that God hardened his heart. So what explains Pharaoh's actions, God or Pharaoh himself? Well, that depends on your perspective. I want you to think about what is true of Pharaoh is also true of us. Each of us makes our own decisions. Let's say you walk into an ice cream store and you see Rocky Road, then licorice, and then banana walnut, and then strawberry delight ice cream. And you're asked by the person behind the counter, which one do you want? And you point out one of them and you have chosen. And later you're asked, why did you choose Rocky Road? And you might answer, I had my heart set on that one. Well, did you choose freely or didn't you? Well, on the one hand, it was a free choice, but on the other hand, Your choice was entirely dictated by the desire of your heart. So you were determined to do that which your heart dictated to you, that you wanted. Now imagine Pharaoh. Imagine a man whose heart is given towards his own ego, towards satisfying his desire for greatness. He worships himself. Along comes Moses, the leader of the slaves. He says, the God of the lowly despised slaves that you abuse and hold in less than human terms. Yeah those slaves. Their God is making demands on you, and you, Pharaoh, had better obey. And Pharaoh says, I'll never do that. The answer is flat out no. Now imagine years later, Pharaoh is humiliated. He's lost his army in the Red Sea. His country's economy is devastated. People are still mourning the death of the firstborn in every home. The country is a mess. And Pharaoh says, that was God's doing. He manipulated me into making bad decisions. But you say, hey, How can that be? No, 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 no. You freely chose to disobey God. Indeed, no one forced you to say no to God. And he said, let my people go. And you said, "Uh, I, I won't do that. So it was your free choice. You hardened your own heart. Now imagine for a moment that Pharaoh answers, but wait a minute. God knew who I was. He knew I never lost a foot race when I was a kid. I never lost a battle on the battlefield. I never lost anything. I was an egomaniac. So if he, knowing what my heart was like, put me in a situation like that, having to lose to slaves, then he knew exactly how my heart would respond to something like that. Every time under those circumstances, it was God who hardened my heart. 
Well, here's an interesting thing. In a way, both of those things are true. But let's imagine in this dialogue with Pharaoh, you get the last word. You say to Pharaoh, well then, all that God did was show the whole world what kind of a fellow you truly are. And that, I think, is the answer to the puzzle of what it means when Paul says, God gave them over. It means that God brought about a set of circumstances that highlighted how evil our hearts actually were. The river of evil desires that were pulling at our souls, well, God brought circumstances that made our hearts fully express how much we hated God's way. I hope you see what Romans is doing. It should make us concerned about the sin that's in all of us, but more so about God's reaction to our sin. Is there hope? Oh, yeah. There's lots of hope. It's called the gospel. It's the only hope that we have. But you're only going to want it when you see how badly you actually need it. And it's true that we need it when we see our hearts exposed. John, thanks so much for today's message. It's been a challenging one and something that we're going to have to take to heart and think through. Uh, John, one of the exciting things that we've been talking about, or you and I have been over the last number of weeks, is the opportunity we're going to have to visit Israel in October and November of this year. And uh, I'm interested to know, what's one of your most memorable experiences of your Israel trips? I've been to Israel on two occasions, and both of them were memorable. I remember on my first trip, there was an experience that I had that, that I was unprepared for. Uh, we were visiting Capernaum, which, as many of you know, was the home base of Jesus during his Galilean ministry. And, of course, the Sea of Galilee comes right onto the edge of Capernaum. That's where Peter would have had his fishing business. But I took a walk along the Sea of Galilee by myself. And I remember imagining Jesus walking with Peter after Peter had betrayed Christ. And, of course, Christ is risen again. And, and they're walking along the Sea of Galilee right outside of Capernaum. And that's where, of course, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And in that moment, standing by myself, I started to weep as I thought I heard Jesus saying the very same words to me, do you love me? Do you love me? I'll never forget that. That's just one of the experiences that I had. And I was unprepared for that. I actually think that a lot of people have experiences like that in Israel. They think that this is going to be the place where I'm really going to have that experience. And then sometimes they're surprised by what they experience in unexpected places. It is. Uh, I've had the opportunity also to uh, visit it twice, and uh, you know, I was impacted by just the, how compact everything was, and and the Word of God sort of came to life in that fashion because you could understand. Well, how could this happen here, and then this happen, and it just it just all comes to light. Well, we're grateful for the opportunity we're going to have to share that with uh, a number of people. Uh, this year in October and November, and we encourage people, if they want to understand more or they want to know more about the trip, they can uh, check it out at backtothebible.ca. How do we respond to sin? How do we expect God to respond to us as followers of Him? Do we feel entitled, or are we willing to let Him lead us? Think about these things as we wrap up our Bible teaching for today. And join us next week as Dr. Neufeld continues his series in Romans, The Heart of the Gospel, taking us into Romans chapter 2. Have a great day from all of us at Back to the Bible Canada. You know, teaching and engaging others with the Bible is what we're all about. 
It's our passion to see lives changed, and it drives us each and every week. If you believe in the mission and share our passion, if you've been impacted or you know others that have been blessed and challenged by our Bible teaching programs, perhaps you'd consider sharing in our ministry and becoming a monthly partner. Your monthly gift is the backbone of being able to provide a variety of Bible teaching and engagement programs, including the daily teaching program with Dr. John Newfeld. For more information on monthly partnership, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.